Family, isn't it a wonderful thing? Family. Just look at somebody and say, family. That was kind of weak. I need to explain something to you about me. Farrell and I go way back. I have 35 minutes, something like that. Um, uh, and he knows that the quieter you are, the more I assume you're not getting it, so I explain it some more, and we take longer. So anybody want to talk about family today? Farrell does. <laughs> I am so honored to be here. This is an exciting place. Amen. Is that music team incredible or what? Yes. Praise God. Cool stuff. And so it has been a joy for the last two or three months to work with your leadership team and, and Farrell and I rekindling our friendship. And so it's a real joy to be here today. But I want to talk about the family. Anybody here agree with me that the American family is under attack? Anybody agree with that statement at all? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, how many of you agree with me that so goes the family, so goes the nation? And so here we find ourselves uh, at a very critical time uh, when the American family is almost desperate in need of strengthening, and the impacts, the implications are profound. I, I read just the other day, doing some research, that the average marriage in America now lasts 7.2 years. James Dobson, focused on the family, says that 80% of marriages have a conflict in them that if not resolved, could in fact bring about the demise of that marriage. The result of that is the age of first marriage has been slipping now for quite a while. When my grandma uh, was married, the average age of first marriage was 15. When my mother got married, the average age of marriage was 19. When Kim and I got married 35 years ago, the average age was 23. You know what it is now? 29. Something's Excuse me, something's going on, and there's a fear factor about this thing called marriage that's impacting us in powerful kind of ways. And yet, survey after survey still says that the number one thing that Americans want is to get married and have a happy family. That's what we want. That's what we're after. Well, I didn't come here to bring you bad news. Sometimes you got to know how bad the bad news is to enjoy or appreciate the good news. I came to give you good news, and the good news is this. Are you ready? Anybody ready for good news? The, the good news is there's a solution. There's an answer, and it's in the owner's manual. <laughs> there are instructions in this booklet for how to build a strong family. And so I want to talk to you about that for a few minutes this morning and, and help you to, to do a little evaluation of how we're doing in our family from a biblical perspective and what are some areas that we might grow in knowing that I'm talking to a wide range of people in this room. I'm talking to singles. I'm talking to hope to be married. I'm talking about short-term marriages. I'm talking about long-term marriages. I'm talking about marriages that are on the mountaintop right now, marriages that are perhaps struggling a bit. It's a wide range of people in this audience right now, but here we are talking about what can we do to build the kind of marriage that quite honestly we stood at the altar and hoped for when we got married. Again, the good news is Paul gives us a formula for the happy marriage. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you brought your Bible, you can look there. Uh, we're going to bring it up on the screens for you so you can see it and we can read it together because I want you to get into this and, and hear yourself reading the Word of God and then I just want to unpack it for you. The cool way that Paul lays out Ephesians 4, big portions of it, is that he puts it in kind of a formula. By that I don't mean, you know, magic formula, rub Aladdin's lamp and you get your wishes. I'm not talking about that. But he does kind of lay it out in a mathematical formula. Uh, that, that gives us the negative and then the positive and then the reason. He gives us the, the, the don't do's. Then he gives us the instead do's, and then he gives us the reason why we ought to not do that and instead do 
this. Let me give you an example, okay? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. We can put it up on the screens. I've given it to you in the North Carolina version since we're here in Carolina now. <clears throat> I guess that's New Century, but it looks like North Carolina to me. Anyway, here we go. Just wanted to see if you're awake, okay? Let's read it. One, two, three, go. So you must stop telling lies, tell each other the truth, because we all belong to each other in the same family. Did anybody see what the don't do's are? Hello, are you out there? Is this microphone on? What's the don't do? Lie. Don't lie. What's the instead do? Tell the truth. And why? Because we need each other. We belong to each other. And ultimately, trust is the glue that ties relationships together. Relationships don't stay together because you always agree with each other. I don't even agree with myself sometimes. I'll say stuff and say, I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. You know? But trust is the glue that ties us all together. So you see the formula? You want to do another one? Let's look at verse 28, okay? Ephesians 4, 28. Here we go. One, two, three, go. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Anybody see the don't do's? Don't steal to get wealth. What's the do-do's? I just wanted to say do-do in church. I know it's just kind of fun to say do-do in church, but uh, come on, say it with me. Do-do. I'll see. You don't feel just kind of fun? A little... Okay. What's the instead do's? Work. Get wealth with dignity, he said. And why do we do that? Because we ought to be helping each other, not taking from each other. Is this making sense? You got the don't do's, then you got the, the do do's, and then you got the reasons why. Well, I want to focus in, in the few minutes we've got this morning. Farrell said I could go right on through second service, so it's all right if we just take some time. And uh, <laughs> try not to do that. But I want to focus in on verses 31 and 32, because he gives us that same kind of formula uh, for the family, uh, and, and I want to just unpack it for you just a little bit, okay? So you got it? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 2. Uh, let's read it together. One, two, three, go, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What's the breakdown in that one? What's the don't do's? Don't go around with bitterness and hurting each other and rage and anger and slandering each other and just carrying malice to one another. Instead, do what? Be kind, be compassionate or loving, and be forgiving to one another. Why? Because that's what Jesus does for us. That's what Jesus has done for us, frankly, when we didn't deserve it. He gave us kindness, and he gave us compassion, and he gave us forgiveness even while we were thumbing our noses at him. So in the few minutes I've got, I don't want to focus on the, on the don't do's. I think you've got a handle on those. Maybe that's a topic for another day, but I do want to focus in on the instead do's. I want to just make sure that you understand the dynamics of what does it mean to be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving, and then I want to give you some Maybe some action steps you can take from this place to lay a foundation for building the strong family that I know you all want. Now, I need to, I need to give you one little secret uh, to preaching this kind of a topic, okay? There's a ground rule, and the ground rule is you're not allowed to throw elbows. Hello, are you out there? If you hear something and you think it applies to the person sitting next to you, keep your elbows to yourself. You can throw your elbows in the car if you want to. I'll have all kinds of fights in the car on the way home. That's fine. Uh, but here, elbows are not allowed. Got it? Got it? Got it? 
All right, let's get into it. What's the first do-do that we're supposed to do? Be kind. The Greek word is krestos that, that, that carries a meaning a lot more than just kind of say kind things, speak in kind ways. It actually means useful. It means employed. So what he's talking about is actually doing kind things for each other. And that sounds so simple. I mean, it's so elementary. It's just common sense. Why on earth would we take time in a Sunday morning service to talk about something as simple as being kind? Yet, if we're honest, this is one of those kind of places where we tend to do that. It's amazing how we start out that way, but somewhere along the way, we slip into the don't-dos. Is it true? Before you know it, we've fallen into the pattern that Solomon wrote about 2,500 years ago, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9, better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. No, I know, I just alienated half the room. Don't worry, ladies, I'll get to the guys in a minute. Uh, I'm an equal opportunity slammer. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll just get them, all right? But first, I want to make sure you got the picture of what Solomon's talking about, because I think it is far more common than most of us would like to admit. The wife has been nagging. Why didn't you take out the trash? When are you going to fix the faucet? When are you going to clean out the car? I've been begging you to do this stuff. And while she's talking, he's shrinking lower and lower and lower into his recliner, wondering how he's going to get out of this because he doesn't want to do those things that she's asking him to do. Eventually, he gets an opening and he slips out the door and climbs up on the roof of the house. And there he sits on the corner of the roof saying, ah, peace at last. You see it, right? Husband sitting on the corner of the roof, legs dangling over the side, wife in the kitchen, hands on her hips going, where is he? I know he's here. I know he's here. I will get him. Before you guys think you've slid on this one, the truth is behind every nagging, complaining wife, there is a corresponding whining, avoiding husband. Ladies, be quiet. Be nice. I'm talking about being kind. But it's true. Now, don't misunderstand me. At work... He is Mr. Mover, Shaker, Get Her Done. He is make decisions, tell people what to do, million-dollar decisions. He goes hard all day, and then he gets home, and he evolves into a recliner. Uh, you know, and he only speaks once every 30 minutes all evening. Where's the remote? What's for dinner? Get me some tea. <laughs> then at the end of the evening, after three and a half hours of watching television, he pronounces the benediction. The benediction is, there ain't nothing worth watching on TV anymore. I'm going to bed. <laughs> now, tomorrow at work, he's Mr. Mover Shaker again. But now he is Couch Potato Pete. Enter Mrs. Nagaloid, who says, aren't you going to take out the trash? To which he responds, do I have to? The Flintstones are on, and you know I love that show. My point is, it hasn't always been that way. We laugh about it because we relate to it, but it hasn't always been that way. We didn't start out that way. Go back to dating days. You didn't do that when you were dating. Come on, guys. 
You didn't go off on a date and, and, and after that date, run back to your best friends and say, guys, I have met her. She is beautiful. She is intelligent. She is capable. And she nags so good. I mean, all night she said, buckle your seatbelt. You're driving too fast. You're following too close. Oh, pray with me that God will give her to me. It's not the way dating worked. I mean, come on, ladies. You didn't run back to your BFFs and say, oh, I have found him. He's the captain of the football team, and he has dimples, and he whines so beautifully. <laughs> Pray with me. I love him so. We didn't do that during the dating stage. We were kind to each other. We did kind things to each other, but something, something shifted, and I don't know fully why it shifted, at least I don't know for you ladies, I do know for us guys. Sorry guys, I'm gonna let the cat out of the bag. Uh, <clears throat> the reason it changed for us <clears throat> is because we are, we're objective-oriented, we're goal-oriented, men are goal-oriented, and while we're dating, we have an objective. What's the objective? It's get a wife, right? Oh, I need a wife, and uh, this looks like a good one. I think I'll catch this one. It's kind of like catch a fish. I mean, it's, it's kind of... <laughs> Well, it is. I mean, you bait the hook and you dangle it, right? What, what's, what's the bait? You, you write poems and you make phone calls and you take them to dinner. Then you set the hook with nicknames like Poopsie Whoopsie and, you know, romantic <laughs> stuff like that. And then you reel her in with flowers and poems and then you get her in the boat you catch her in the boat and you know how you caught her in the boat you did it you're going to deny it but it's true you went shopping with her <laughs> and pretended to like it you even carried her purse you did i know you did because i saw you and you were glad to because you had an objective and the objective was catch fish. I mean, get a wife. I mean, get her down the aisle. I mean, get in the boat. I mean, the only thing left after you catch the fish is gut her, stuff her, mount her, and put her over the mantle. <laughs> yep, got the little lady back in 75. What I'm trying to say is we didn't start out nagging. We didn't start out complaining or whining, but somewhere along the way, they both started, I don't know, chicken or the egg, which came first, I don't know. I just know this, that it is a cycle that feeds into itself. The nagging feeds the whining, and the whining feeds the nagging. And the only way out is for somebody to make the decision to be kind again. The tragic reality is that we are more kind to strangers sometimes than we are the people we love the most. Lots of reasons why. I guess we could spend some time talking about the reasons why. The most profound, of course, is that men and women are different and we don't always understand each other. Is that true? Have you noticed that men and women are different? I mean, there are lots of ways. I mean, one of them that comes to mind is that whole... He only talks a little bit when he gets home. I don't know if you know this or not, but the average woman has a bank of about 30,000 words a day that she has to spend. The average man has a bank of about 15,000 words a day. They both go off to work in the morning and they spend their day talking and doing all the things that are necessary. By the end of the day, she spent about 15,000 of her words and she's got 15,000 left. He spent 14,992 of his. 
He ain't got much left. That's just going to create some conflict. But the bigger one when it comes to this issue of kindness that I think is critical, and if you'll understand this, it might help you a little bit, is that women are cooperators, but men are negotiators. Just, I know that's generalizing, but I think it's still generally true. Let me give you an example, and, and you tell me if it's true. Let's say that you're a married couple, and you invite a group of married couples over for an evening, and, and so you get together, and you have dinner, and when dinner is over, you know what happens. The guys end up in the den watching the game, and the ladies wind up in the kitchen or the dining room chatting. That's kind of the natural tendency of things. Well, let's say that the ladies are standing around the dining room table, and there's a bowl of chips in the middle of the table, and they're still nibbling a little bit. One of the ladies is telling a story, and the other ladies are listening intently to the story. One of them, out of the corner of her eye, sees that the chip bowl is empty and decides, I better do something about that. And so without missing a beat, without saying a word, ladies, you know what she does? She reaches over, she picks up the chip bowl, and she starts to the kitchen. And all of the other ladies, seeing what's going on, just go with her. And they just kind of walk to the kitchen together, and they keep telling the story. One of them stops and fills the bowl with chips, and then they make their way back into the dining room, and they don't miss a beat in the whole story. They sit it down, and they just keep going. Am I right? Go into the den where the guys are. First of all, they don't have a bowl. They have a bag. And they've been passing the bag around until it gets to one of the guys and it's empty. He doesn't say anything because he knows if he says anything, he has to go to the kitchen and get the next bag. <laughs> so he tries to slip the empty bag to the guy beside him who looks at it and says, no, you're not, and hands it back. So he finally says, guys, we're out of chips. The negotiations then begin. One of them says, I bought them. Well, he wins. Another guy says, I went and got the last bag. He wins. And eventually, it goes around the room until somebody comes up with some lame kind of thing like, I didn't eat the last one. Or, you know, it's just something like that. And he, he, they don't have to say you lost. He just knows he lost. And so he gets up and goes to the kitchen gets a new bag, throws it in the middle of the floor, sits down and watches the game. That's, that's the difference. So let's go back to our original scene where Mr. Mover Shaker has come home from work after a hard day's work, and he's, he's kind of evolved into the kitchen, uh, into the, to the recliner there. He, he walks in the front door, takes his coat off and drops it, takes his shirt off and drops it, kicks his shoes off and drops it, pulls his pants off and drops it. He's in his boxers now, sitting in the recliner, looking for the remote control. <laughs> Mrs. Nagaloid has been at work all day too, but she knows there's work to be done, so she's in the kitchen and she calls out to him very sweetly, I mean very nicely. She says, honey, would you mind taking out the trash while I get dinner started? To which he says, do I have to? I worked hard all day today and I just got home. Can I just have a few minutes to unwind? Which gets on one of her nerves just a little. So she replies, all I'm asking from you, you know where this is going, right? <laughs> all I'm asking from you is a little cooperation. He doesn't understand that she values cooperation. She doesn't understand that he values 
negotiation. He's saying, well, I was just setting up the negotiations. I would have done it if I lost during the commercials, unless I went to bed first. But instead of getting a dialogue going about what needs to be done and how they can be kind to one another, he sinks lower and lower and lower into his recliner and pulls further and further away. And the more he pulls away, the more she moves in. Before you know it, she is circling his recliner like a Comanche, just nagging and going and saying, I just need, this is all I need. I just don't ask much from you. And I work hard around here. And then something happens at the other end of the house that gets her attention for a moment. And she looks away. And in that one second that she looks away. He's up, out of the recliner, out the door, up on the roof of the house, legs dangling, going, ah, peace at last. Now, where's she? Remember I told you? She's in the kitchen, hands on hips, going, where'd he go? I will find him. Which brings us to verse 19 of Proverbs 21. It is better to live alone in the desert than with a quarreling and complaining wife. You got the picture of that one? He's sitting on the roof, peace at last, and then her voice wafts up through the eaves of the house, and he hears her on the roof, and he goes, I guess the only way I'm going to get any peace and quiet tonight is get in the car and drive to the desert. I don't know where the desert is in Wayne County, but... He gets in his car, he starts down the road, and there are men sitting on the corner of roofs all up and down Whitley Church Road as he goes. And then he winds up in the desert and wakes up and says, I'm alone. How'd I get here? I love that woman. I love my family. How did I get here? Somehow it dawns on him that if I'm going to be the spiritual leader of my home, somebody's got to take the initiative to be selfless. Some brave soul has got to be willing to step up and be kind. To think more of the interest of others than our own interests, to take on the same attitude as Christ Jesus, Philippians 2 tells us. At the risk of pushing a painful point further, the biggest tragedy, of course, is that Mr. Mover Shaker Weiner and Martha Stewart Nagaloid have children. Fast forward 15 years, and they bring their kids to the church because they're having a lot of trouble with these teenagers. Pastor, we don't do it with these kids. They fight all the time. We can't get them to clean their room. They won't do their homework. He whines all the time. She complains all the time. We just don't understand what's going on. We think it is the public school system. We think it's the music that they listen to. And we need you, youth pastor, to fix them. To which the youth pastor replies, well, you know, there are some problems in the public school system. We probably ought to look at those. And yeah, it's a really good idea to monitor their music. But you know what? Before we... Start talking about outside influences on your kids. Maybe we ought to stop and ask, what kind of role model you guys have been for them? 
Paul said that if we're going to have a strong family, don't walk around with malice and bitterness and resentment and anger, and don't slander each other. Instead, be kind. The second thing he tells us to do is be loving toward one another, to be compassionate. That word compassion, some translations uses the word love, is the Greek word eusplagnos uh, that means tender-hearted. It means compassionate. It means, it means love in action. It's not just a feeling word. It's a doing word. In fact, one of the problems we have with this whole thing of, of loving one another is that word love gets used in every corner you can think of. It gets used in so many different ways that we don't even understand what love is. A few years ago, I was uh, preaching on this subject, and I decided I would go do some research on, on the proper definition of love. I had a world book encyclopedia set on my shelf, so I decided I'd pull it down and look it up. I don't know if you've still got one of those in a box somewhere, but, uh, but pull it out. You can find this. This is absolutely true. I opened up the world book encyclopedia. I looked up the word love. There was no article. The only thing it said was see sex, comma, emotion. I said, that's, that's perfect. That's our culture. They think love is about sex and about emotions. So I, being the spiritual giant that I am, looked up sex and uh, <laughs> felt like a seventh grader, but nevertheless, came to the conclusion that there's a lot of confusion about what love really is. So I just need to make sure that you understand that love is more than a feeling. Love is an action. Oh, it produces feelings. Thank God for the feelings that it produces. Yeah, this, there's a wonderful release that happens. Even the scientists understand the, the, the emotion of love. There's a chemical release that happens. I can't pronounce the chemical. I call them phenethylmermans. I don't know what they're, but there's this chemical release that happens uh, in us that creates this euphoria. It's a wonderful thing. But hear me, guys, those feelings are not enough to build a life on. They're not enough to build a family on because human emotion rises and falls. You can get a feeling from a bad pizza. You can't build a family on feeling. Am I right? In fact, the Bible's clear. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is an action. Love is a commitment that we look. Look at the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Those those sound like feeling words to you? They sound like do words to me. They sound like action words to me. They sound like commitment words, whether you feel like it or not, to me. So when Paul said, be kind, he's talking about us being selfless and other-centered and doing things for one another, whether we deserve it or not. And when he says, be loving, be compassionate, He's talking about us doing whether we feel like it or not. I learned these principles many years ago, and I came to the place where I would pull up in my driveway at home after a hard day at the church and preparations for whatever was going on and <clears throat> leading ministries, perhaps doing some pastoral counseling, and, and often would get to the house at the end of the day exhausted, emotionally drained. And I'd pull up in the driveway understanding this principle, and I'd pause before I got out of the car, and I'd say, oh, Lord, I ain't got nothing left. But I'm about to walk into a house 
with the people that I love the most. And I'm going to need you to show up and fill me up so I've got something to give whether I feel like it or not. Truth of the matter is, Kim and I have been married 35 years. We get this right sometimes. We get it wrong sometimes. And, and we need a reminder now and then. So maybe as you're sitting here today, <clears throat> this is brand new information for you. Maybe it's just a nudge at the right moment to say, you know, I need to get back on track. Wherever you are, the Bible says if you want a strong family, don't relate with malice and anger and slander or bitterness. Instead, be kind and to be loving. Perhaps the most important element that he gave us, though, is for us to be forgiving toward one another. I say that's the most important because, let's be honest, none of us always get this right. Hello? None of us always get this right. Thank you. None of us always get this right. I'm going to keep saying it to you, agree or disagree. None of us always get this right. So forgiveness is always part of the equation in the family. Amen? It, it is. And if you're a parent, you understand that because a huge percentage of your time is given to your kids playing referee between the fights that they're having. Is it true? Sure it is. You just step in. Before you know it, you're just, all you're doing is playing referee all the time. You even make forgiveness part of the punishment. You do, you say, okay, you gotta, you gotta make up. You gotta say, I'm sorry. You gotta hug. You can't watch any television until you hug and make up. All right? They go, yeah. But we understand that conflict is part of the human equation. Conflict is part of the human dynamic. And so we know that forgiveness is going to be in the midst of it. I came to the place a number of years ago. We've, we've got three sons. They're all grown and married now, but when they were young, I came to a place where I, I, I just got weary of playing referee all the time between those boys, and I went to Kim and said, Kim, there's got to be a better way. What is it that, that we're not doing uh, to help our boys understand that conflict is an inevitable part of human relationship? You, you know that, right? Am I being cynical when I say that? No, I, I don't think so, because the fact of the matter is, any relationship that you have beyond superficial is going to have some conflict eventually. I mean, you, you got an old friend from high school, you see him uh, in, in Walmart once in a while, you say, hey, how you doing? How are the kids? Yeah, let's do lunch sometime. Not much conflict there. But you start getting together, eventually one of you is going to disagree with the other one. <laughs> There's going to be some conflict eventually. It's just part of the human equation. And so I went to Kim and said, there's got to be something that we're doing. And she said some words to me that were hard to hear. But they were true. She said, Jim, maybe, maybe you need to role model forgiveness. Maybe you need to role model asking for forgiveness when you don't get it right. Maybe I need to do the same. And so I asked her, in that conversation to help me with that because quite frankly, that didn't come naturally to me. I, and I, I'd never seen it role modeled. My dad was a good man, I loved my dad. I lost him many years ago, I was only 19 when he died. Um, but my dad was old school. My dad 
uh, did not ask for forgiveness. He did not offer forgiveness. He said it, and therefore it's done, and that's the role model that I had for a dad. And it never occurred to me that dads would actually be tender, that dads would actually embrace this forgiveness kind of dynamic, either giving or receiving. And so Kim's challenge to me was kind of eye-opening, and I said, help me with this, and she did. I don't like very much how she helped me, but she did. Let me tell you a little personal story of how she helped me, and, and then I'll wrap this up by just giving you some, some suggestions about what to do from here. Uh, when our youngest son, Zach, the one who'll be in the 11 o'clock service this morning because he lives here in Wayne County, uh, when, uh, when he was, I guess, five or six, Zach and I were buds. We still are close, but um, we were buds. When his two older brothers got hurt, they'd run to mama. When Zach got hurt, he ran to me. We just had that kind of connection. And so anytime I did anything, Zach would usually find a way to get close to me. We had moved into a new house, and, uh, and, and it needed some painting. And so I, I was in painting one of the bedrooms one evening. I had an event that night, and I wanted to get the room finished before the event. So I'm kind of rushing. I'm pushing hard to get it done. And Zach comes in, and he says, Dad, I want to help. Can I paint too? And, and, and I said, sure, no, okay. You know. And, and I, I gave him a little can of paint and a little brush, and I opened a closet door and said, paint the inside of this door, figuring if he messed it up, be no big deal. I'll, I'll fix it later or something. And so I'm trying not to be frustrated with the fact that he's getting in my way because I got a lot to do and not much time to do it in. And he did what any five-year-old with a can of paint in their hand would do, dropped it, spilled on the floor, paint everywhere. And I, again, being the spiritual giant that I am, went off on him. What are you doing? Why did you drop the can of paint? Now do you see the mess that I have to clean up and I don't really have time to even finish this job and now I gotta clean up this mess and Zach looked at me with them huge eyes and he ran out of the room, ran into his room and I'm still yelling, he's not even in the room anymore. I'm in there cleaning up the paint and I got a rag and I'm just muttering under my breath about how hard it is and how hard I work and how I deserve better than this for my family and I felt it. I didn't see it, I didn't hear it, I just felt it. It was burning a hole in the back of my head. You ladies know what I'm talking about. It was the look. It was Kim. She was not saying a word, not making a sound. She was just looking. Is there a manual, ladies? I have talked about the look in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, in Europe, you all know. I don't know how you know. But here's Kim looking at me, and I'm going, don't look at me. I'm, no, no, stop looking at me. She said, without saying a word, not a sound, he deserves better than that from you. You know that boy loves you. He almost worships you. You ought to get up and go apologize to him. <laughs> Shut up. She ain't saying a word. She's just looking. I finally got up, and I walked down the hall to his room, and of course, by now, Zach's on his bed, and he's snubbing. He's just, <gasps> he can't even get his breath. He's just all to pieces, and I sat down on the side of his bed, and I'm thinking about, how am I going to get out of this? Uh, you know, I was going to say, you know, I hope you're okay or something. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I know what to say. I don't want to say what I need to say. And I felt the look through the wall. <laughs> How did she do that? And so I finally got Zach calmed down, and I said, Zach, I just need to tell you, I'm sorry. 
Anybody can have an accident. It was just an accident. I had no business speaking to you that way. Will you forgive me? And I began to weep. And he cried and I cried and we hugged together for a few minutes. We finally pulled back and I said, will you? Will you, will you forgive me, son? He said, yeah, dad. And there was a moment of silence and I could tell there was something rolling in his head. He wanted to say something and I'm waiting for this profound thing to come out of his mouth. And he looked at me, you know, his eyes are all swollen and tears are kind of starting to dry a little bit. He said, you cry funny. (laughs) (laughs) And in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke into my heart and said, please be sure that when your sons grow up, they will respect you, not because you were the tyrant who made them do the things you knew they needed to do, but because you cried funny. And in the process, role model for them what forgiveness looks like. Paul said, if you want a strong family, you've got to be kind. You've got to be compassionate, loving. You've got to be forgiving. Sometimes you have to ask for forgiveness. The question is, and I've got to close. I get four. I've got to close this, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> What do you do when your family hasn't been operating that way? What do you do when that's not the way it's been going? There are three things. Let me just mention them quickly. You can jot it down. There's a place in your notes you can jot these down just very quickly just to close it all out and we'll go to prayer. Is if you haven't been functioning that way and you're hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you this morning through the word of God, the first step in this journey is concentrate on reconciliation, not resolution. Reconciliation is reestablishing the relationship. Resolution is resolving every issue. There's a profound difference between those two things. And the number one mistake that families make is they feel like they have to resolve the issues before they can relate to one another. If you go after a resolution first, you will never get to reconciliation. You start with reconciliation. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm committed to this relationship. Let's make sure that we're in agreement. We're going to do this. There have been times through the years that Kim has looked at me and said, you know, I don't like you very much right now, but I love you. There have been times when I've looked at her through the years and said, I don't know how we're going to get past this one, but we are because we're in this for life. In those reconciliation moments, you find the power to resolve the issues. And sometimes the issues become irrelevant because the only real issue is I was feeling disconnected from you. So reconciliation comes first. In fact, that's what the scriptures say. God just says it's so important. Sorry, pastor. It's so important. Skip church if you have to to do it. That's what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 4. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your wife or your son or your daughter or your mother or your father or fill in the blank, remember that your brother has something against you. What do you do? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled. So your brother then come and offer your gift. Pastor says, yeah, it's okay. Go be reconciled. Leave your tithe here. <laughs> but go and be reconciled. Because it's going to inhibit your worship while that's going on anyway. So go be reconciled. We've got 
Folks, sometimes we teach this in our church. We've got folks who will show up, put their kids in kids' church, go back to their car, sit in the parking lot, and be reconciled in the parking lot. And we say, praise God. Now get in by the end of the service because we take our offering at the end of the service. (laughs) The second thing you do is you get help. You don't be ashamed, you don't be embarrassed. If you've got a back problem, you go to the back doctor. If you've got a financial problem, you go to the credit counselor. If you've got a problem, you go get help. Well, that would be humiliating to admit. I mean, I'm a committed Christian. I'm a deacon in the church. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a servant in the church. I'm a I'm high profile person in the body of Christ. I could never admit that I got a problem in my family. That would be absolutely humiliating. That's the point. First Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but what? gives grace to the humble. You may not need a professional counselor, but you got to find somebody, trusted friends, somebody that you can go to. And I know this church has some amazing people who would like nothing better than to help you work through whatever issues you have in your home. Focus on reconciliation, get help, and then finally call on the Lord. Call on the Lord. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heavenly realms. Jim, you don't know how far my family's gone. I say it's irrelevant how far they've gone. Because the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead can resurrect your family too. He says it's available to us. Paul prayed that we would understand that. We serve a God who specializes in resurrections. So you bring your family to him and watch him do a miracle. It begins by you getting your vertical relationship with him right. And then he empowers you in your horizontal relationships with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is an answer. We thank you that you've given us all the instructions that we need in the owner's manual, your word, for us to have the families that we long for. I pray simply that every one of us in this place would take an honest look at how we've been relating to our spouses, to our kids, to our parents, to our brothers and sisters, to our extended family, to our spiritual family, how we've been relating to one another, asking ourselves honest questions. Have I been relating through the lens of bitterness and resentment, malice, maybe even slander, gossip? Or have I been relating through kindness and compassion and forgiveness? In the areas where I've been getting it wrong, Lord, would you forgive me? Give me a fresh start right now. Some of you need to pray that prayer right now, just in the quietness of your seat, in the quietness of this moment. Pray it out loud. You can pray it silently, but some of you need to pray it right now. A sense in the spirit that God wants to do something amazing in your life right now. Father, forgive me for not getting it right. Give me a fresh start with my family today. And let it begin in my relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for loving us when we get it right, loving us when we get it wrong. Thank you for loving us through it all. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's all stand to our feet and thank God for this message and this man. Would you please stand and let him know how much you, how much you appreciate what he said. Will you walk up here? I know the house is full tonight. Can, can, we just, can we just get as close up here as we can, everybody, and let's pray a final prayer together. Let me just pray over you before you leave. This is one of the biggest challenges we face today. Our speaker today could not have talked about a more relevant topic in the church. And I want you to come. You say, my marriage is good, Pastor. We're great. Well, just come and just recommit it again. Bring a friend's marriage up here today. Bring a family member's marriage up here today. And not just marriage, but you know, as he was preaching, I thought this is any broken relationship. Any broken relationship can be repaired if we follow what we heard today. And some of us can't get any further with God because we refuse to reconcile. We refuse to reconcile with someone that we know we need to reconcile with. You might say, well, I don't think they'll receive it. I don't think they'll receive it, so I'm just leaving it alone. But you can do your part. You can do what you're supposed to do. Somebody's got to be kind first. Somebody's got to be loving first. Somebody's got to be forgiving first. Will you raise your hand in your heart and say, God, I'll go first. I'll go first. Father, thank you for this word today. Don't let us walk away from here and forget this, God. Don't let us walk away from here and and say, well, where are we going to lunch? And that was nice and uh, all of that. But God, let this get in us deep. Let this message, let us marinate, absorb it into us. There are some people here today that are working on resolution. They they want their point made, their point heard. They want to be agreed with. We've got to get away from that and work on just coming together and saying, I love you, I care about you. I know we've got some conflicts, we've got some disagreements, but let's just come together and commit to each other that we love each other. And then let's work on it. What a message. What a powerful message. Let it, let it soak into all of us, Lord. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Before you go home, don't forget to leave your Connect card. If you didn't get your offering ready, you can drop it off back here or out in the uh, foyer at the Connect Center. Sign up. you got a little card in your worship program where you can sign up to volunteer, get involved. We'll pray for you. If you're here this morning and you would like special prayer, we'll be more than happy to pray for you. So hang around and let us know that, and we'll pray for you before you go. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.